Hello, freaks, and welcome to Radical Research. I'm Jeff Wagner, and my co-host is my friend and fellow researcher, Hunter Ginn. Hello. Radical Research, the podcast, is a conversation about the inner and outer reaches of rock and metal music, but really it's kind of an outgrowth of numerous conversations, thousands of conversations maybe, where we'll be discussing you know, one of our many mutual musical interests, something from Norway, probably. Uh, and- almost certainly. And by the end of the 20-minute phone call, we'll have covered this ridiculous array of artists uh, in, in this like long, strange chain of connection. We find some connection in there, uh, hopefully some decent analysis. So we just sort of figured that there must be some others out there whose light bulbs go on, you know, at the mention of Mars Volta, No Means No, King Crimson, Mind Over Four, Nuclear Death, so much more. Radical research exists as an outgrowth of that. How are we qualified for this? Hunter will speak for himself, but before he does, I, I want to say I consider him one of the best metal journalists ever. Even if his word count is frustratingly small, I consider him an expert enthusiast, and it's an honor to tackle radical research with him. And your qualifications beyond that, Hunter? I am the drummer in a sort of prog post-tech metal band called Canvas Solaris, and uh, I have a new, I hesitate to call it black metal, um, because we have a pretty tenuous connection to it, but tied to that more than anything else um, band with uh, our bassist Gail Perlo called the Midas lung. And beyond that, I spend most of my time listening to and reading about weird music. And when not doing that, thinking about weird music and then sharing that enthusiasm with my co-host Jeff Wagner, as I have awesome. done enthusiastically for what, 17 years now. Yeah, 17 years, yep. And 17 we met because of your affiliation with Canvas Solaris back in the demo days. We did. And we found rather quickly that we had an uncanny amount of intersections. And especially in, in terms of um, sort of fringe artists like Last Crack, Mind Over Four, Paroxysm, the list goes on. And we will explore those bands and others as this podcast continues. So I, I think we're qualified just in the fact that we're just these incorrigible, irredeemable nerds with this kind of stuff. <laughs> I mean, and other than millions of hours logged in front of our sound systems, you know, that there's a qualification. I have a few shreds of cred. I've um, made my... A, 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 a few. Uh, you know, you got to be humble. Yeah. I mean, you know. I mean yeah. <laughs> you know, I've made my living, luckily, from music fanaticism in one form or another for like almost 25 years. I'm probably best known for and most proud of my five years as editor of Metal Maniacs magazine and the two books I've written, Mean Deviation, which is a history on progressive metal, uh, including some of the more avant-garde left field stuff, and also Soul on Fire, the Peter Steele biography. And Typo Negative and Carnivore are also uh, mutual adorations that I think Hunter and I share. We absolutely welcome any and all feedback. You can write us at radicalresearchpodcast at gmail.com. Please also give us a rating on iTunes if that's how you're accessing us, and please visit our Facebook page. Simply search Radical Research, and there we will be. So thank you for listening, and let's get to it. On the first episode of Radical Research, we're going to be dissecting the inner workings of the fourth album by Norwegian shapeshifters Olver. And I guess we need to introduce the full title. Themes from William Blake's The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. We chose this record, why? Are we crazy for starting our first podcast with a record this dense, this complicated, this complex? I, probably, but I, I also think it's suitable. 
And I also think that it's appropriate because this entire project began as an impulse to dissect Norwegian post-black metal. And I think that, that this is a prime exemplar of that, that genre. And I really don't know where else we would start. So this album came out in December of 1998. And I think it's important to look at like what was happening in Norway in this constellation at the time. Vedbuen's Ende had already put out their one and only record, Written in Waters. And is it fair to say that's ground zero for this sort of stuff? Probably. Um, I mean, Fluidy came out, um, yeah, Minted Skull Coma came out in 95 as well, but it's still tied in a little more tightly to Norwegian black metal. Sure. Um, and I mean, the, the signifiers are all there, you know, the screeching vocals, the triple guitar. So yeah, I mean, yeah, I think Vedwin Zende's um, take on it is definitely the beginning. Absolutely. I, very foundational. Solafold, we're just getting started at this time. Um, and ho- hopefully most people listening to this that are familiar with Oliver will know about them. Um, and, you know, Dottheim's Guard were still primarily black metal. They, they hadn't really morphed into this really left field thing yet. Yeah, I mean, they were, they were on the cusp. I mean, you know, the Satanic Art EP definitely was moving down there. And they were about a year, I, probably, what, nine months away from doing 666 International? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, which was the real break. Right. And, it's, and I, think, I think it's fair to say then that this album probably took a lot of, there was quite a, quite a varied reaction to it. Naturally. Um, because all of her previous to this, and I think it's important to look at what they did prior to William Blake, you know, they put out what has now been kind of dubbed the trilogy. You know, uh, Bergtot, the first album, is a, a very folky, super earthy, organic black metal record. Is it, doesn't do it justice, I suppose. How would you describe Bergtop? I think that spiritually it's black metal, but um, yeah, I mean, it's folky and monastic and, you know, bucolic and all these other things. I, I think it, it already on the first album, Over was wrestling with the tethers of black metal. Sure. It's one of those albums too that like sounds like it looks. You, you <laughs> feel like you're just you know on one mountainside gazing over at that other mountainside. Sure. Um, and it's and it's a little bit dusky, and uh, you know you can hear those leaves trampling under your feet. I mean that record sort of just evokes all of that. And then they they come out with Kveldsanger. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, but it's it's all acoustic, all kind of these kind of shorter folky tunes ambient in the sense that it's there's no beats there's no percussion on it it's simply acoustic guitars and garms you know very clean voice sung in norwegian of course i I mean i think it's ambient too that it just has a very very natural atmosphere Mm -hmm. Um, it's again like like bergtot and you were describing the cover um it's very easy to lose yourself in olver's world on kveldsanger I've always wanted to listen to it around a campfire. I just haven't had the opportunity. Probably the most appropriate place to listen. Wouldn't that, to that be album. fantastic? Uh, winter, winter plans. Let's do it. Okay, we're there. Um, and then the third album, Nathan's Madrigal, was the, the the one of probably at the time that it came out in 1997, the noisiest, most scraping, most sort of necro basement dwelling. Just ah. <laughs> oh, like, it's, it's the meaning of necro. You know, when people talk about what necro albums sound like, it's that. However, you know, I, in hindsight, it doesn't sound quite as raw as it, as, it, as it did to our ears when it came out. No, 
No. And I think because so many people have taken the Transylvanian hunger spore since and, and reduced it down to as if that album weren't essential enough <laughs> to, to, you know, to its like molecular base. And I think personally, not only do I think not Ten's magical is one of the best black metal records of all time. I think it's a beautiful record and it's like the, the sound of it is so alarming at first, especially, and it, it, you know, it's one of those things that you kind of have to take in context. It was shocking in 1997 and to someone who's just getting into black metal now, it probably wouldn't be quite so. Fair enough. Um, but there's a underlying sophistication there that is pure over. Well, the, I mean, the, the melodies are just gorgeous. They're, they're, they're majestic. And if they are. first listen, it doesn't sound like there could possibly be melodies in there, but they're, that, that's a key component of that record. You know, I think it's also kind of shocking too, because people had, you know, as you said about Bergtot, they weren't, you know, straight up 100% black metal in the beginning. Right. So to, to come on with this as their third record, especially after the all acoustic and very gentle Feldsanger, which even grandmother would love, you know, it's, <laughs> it's like suddenly this and it's feral as hell. It's gnashing. It's like just teeth gnashing stuff. Yes. And um, so that's the trilogy. And that's where we end up with Ulver when we get to their fourth album. Again, this album is re recorded uh, in the fall of 97 and into 1998 at Jester Studios and also Beep Jam. I don't know anything about Beep Jam, but I'm assuming that both of those are studios that, you know, are owned or operated by the members themselves. I'm betting that Beep Jam is like the equivalent of Heaven Shore. Right. You know, I, I, I think it's probably Garm's bedroom. But here we have an album and I, it, it's so hard to know how to really open up like discussion on what this album really sounds like and what it is. Cause it's very different than the trilogy. It's a very different older. Um, but what it, what it does is, is it is a production piece. It's, it's very, very good um, in terms of, of all the textures, imagery and tones and everything. If you, if you give it a nice hi-fi listen, really an about face from the kind of recording they were doing prior to that. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, I'm not going to so, go so far as to call it an electronic album, but it definitely explores the studio as instrument ethos that was so popular in Europe in the mid and late 90s. You know, it explores dub space and electronic textures in a way that like kind of lends itself to, you know, the the studio anywhere that's so popular now. I mean, it's kind of the beginning of the portable studio. I think it's important also to look at who made this record. Um, it was basically four members who were on the trilogy. Um, mm -hmm. Although even a couple of those guys sat out for the acoustic album, a, a new member in the form of Ilvizakar, I believe that's how you would say it. Y L W I Z A K E R. Um, he remains in the band to this day, along with Garm, of course. And then they also had Newt Magna Valley from, um, as kind of an auxiliary member, I suppose, who is probably best known elsewhere for his work on Arcturus. How do you, how do you pronounce the guy's name with the Y? Ilwizaker. <laughs> I've literally uh, never, I, I've made many attempts and I've never settled on anything. I'm going with that. Uh, il, il, is it Ilvizakar? Ilvizakar. Okay, yeah, yeah. Let's start there. We'll go there. So, yeah. So I think that Ilvizakar's, entry into the band um, 
it's crucial. It, it's telling that he's still in the band today. Yeah. And it's particularly telling that his entry into the band coincides with a radical shift, not only in style, but, uh, but approach to making music. Absolutely. And, and really being uh, just, just going completely nutso in the studio where, where suddenly the palette just widens to the point that it's almost infinite because if you look at where they've gone since he joined the band and he and Garm have kind of steered it into various directions. I mean, everything from experimental, you know, ambient kind of what I call bleep and bloop sort of stuff to, uh, you know, kind of some house or techno kind of experimentations to God, whatever the hell blood inside is. Um, <laughs> and, the, and the current one, we really need to mention the current one, assassination of Julius Caesar, which I'm going to put it really, really high on the Olver pedestal. Um, Very. And we, we won't get into that album right now, but um, I want to, and all I want to really do is listen to it. Um, every free moment I get, it's, it's really, really outstanding. It's essential Olver. It, it is absolutely. But yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's interesting what this guy has brought to the band and, and kind of, as you say, it was really a kind of a watershed moment for the band in their direction because they've just continued to be nothing but, but searchers and seekers and sure. progressives and um, just kind of outliers. So what, what does the record sound like? I know it infuriated black metal people because I want to, I'm going to tell a little story here. I, I was at a uh, metal festival in like 90. Well, I guess when this came out, like late 98, early 99, and there was a gentleman selling, a very black metal gentleman and his very black metal girlfriend selling uh, black metal CDs at his little black metal booth uh, at this festival. And I walked up to him and I hadn't, I hadn't gotten a copy yet of Marriage of Heaven and Hell, but I wanted one. Um, I had heard it. I think I had a copy of it from a friend. And I walked up to the table and asked him if he had this yet. And he said, no, and I shall not be stocking it. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, and I said, okay, great. I walked away. He was very cold about it, but clear, clearly a little pissed off with the direction that Oliver took. Sure. And I always, I always kind of think of that as probably, you know, half the people that, that heard this album probably had that reaction uh, because of where Oliver came from. Um, and then the other I mean, half. It, I would imagine most of the people that bought it initially were black metal fans. Well, sure. Because I mean, you know, who outside of black metal knew about Oliver in 1998? Right. But then again, there, there were people like you and I, there were, you know, we're not, certainly not the only ones. There are many of us where we were already, already listening to Oliver, yet we had you know, a fairly wide palette of, of, of tastes sure. we listening to other stuff so that the, the, all the material within Marriage of Heaven and Hell was really quite appealing. But what, can, can, can we put that into a nutshell before we kind of dig into it? What, what, what is the basic sound? What is the basic essence I of, think, of direction? I think anyone um, acquainted with 90s industrial rock would be able to wade into that album with some comfort. There's a lot more to it. There's ambient, there's musique concrète. Um, there are, you know, rumblings of the British, particularly English dance music continuum um, that threaded throughout the 90s. Um, the thing is, the metal aspects of that album tend to be marginalized in any kind of conversation about it. Absolutely. I think it's still a metal record. It's a, a subversive one and it's a subtle one and it, um, it escapes, you know, a lot of the trappings that we associate with metal. 
mm-hmm. but I, I still, in many ways, think that it's a metal record. I would agree with you. I, I think maybe the band would agree, simply because if you look at the packaging, they this is the final album that they used that classic logo on. Sure. And, you know, logo is kind of a big thing in metal. It's, it's sort of a signifier of very much so attitude and and sort of branding in a sense and this is the last one to bear that logo and and i think that does help tie them to their metal past and as you say there are metal moments on this record they're just marginal um you know i i there's that moment somewhere in the album and it's it's really hard to talk about this album and, and name songs because there really aren't proper song titles um, in the way of, you know, a traditional album. Sure. But there's that moment in, uh, where I swear that I hear Jim Durkin kind of sneaking into the studio <laughs> with this kind of like guitar tone and kind of approach that sounds like those two instrumentals from Leave Scars, just this kind of just really like creepy, off-putting, distorted guitar. Rubbish from cave's mouth. Within a number of dragons were hollowing the cave. In the second chamber was a viper folding round the rock in the cave, and others adorning it with gold, silver, and precious stones. Yet, that's just a flash. That's just a moment um, within this very large, expansive album. But, you know, it, this is almost like an album of moments. You know, yeah, I mean, yeah. it, it, I mean it, it is a very, it, you know, it coheres very sensibly, but I mean, it's it's episodic. I mean, Sometimes I'll listen to this album in pieces, you know, sometimes I only want to hear one big piece from it. Yeah. And I think you can get that. Yeah, absolutely. It, I mean, a full, uh, you know, a full listen it certainly rewards you, but I don't know. I, I like how this album's broken up like that. Well, I think you and I are, are both, you know, we're, we're album listeners primarily. Sure. Of course, you know, we listen in different ways and different environments, but you know, we're, we're big fans of the whole, you know, album all the way through, focusing solely on that, nothing else. Yeah, this one's interesting because it can be taken in that, in that way, but it can also be broken up because there's, there's almost too much to absorb. I mean, it's, it's two CDs, and those are, what, about 48, 49, 50 minutes. Even. Right, yeah, that, the entire album's about 80 minutes. Yeah, which makes you wonder why they didn't maybe edit just a little bit and um, put it on, onto one piece. I think it would have been more digestible. I also think, and I don't know if you if you agree or disagree, my only real criticism of it is sometimes the narration can just go on a little long. And, and I do agree with you. I just think it's a function of the concept. True. But, but I wouldn't mind hearing Garm sing a few more of those verses. Rather than the, the sort of long narr- narrative moments. Right. Yeah. And let's talk about that. Let's talk about Blake's book or his writing and, and what the plates are? Yeah, I mean, speaking in broad strokes, um, and it can be read in a number of ways, and people have certainly read it in a number of ways over the years. But, uh, you know, the, the poem is about man and his metaphysical relationship with God and Satan and the, you know, effects and consequences of that relationship. And Blake believed in God, um, but at least philosophically, he was a foe of the church and particularly so he was a foe of the church's abiding notion of absolute good and absolute evil. And for Blake, those two categories can never be absolute. So I think that heaven and hell is at least in part Blake's attempt to dismantle those binaries and paint a more complex picture of man and God and Satan and how all those things interact. 
And the poem's full of passages that illustrate these competing energies and forces. And at least as I read it, progress and creation are dependent on the presence both of good and evil. And, I mean, that makes it perfect fodder for Ulver because Ulver is a band that is full of contradictions. Yeah. Before, before this album ends since, certainly. Oh, sure. Sure. I mean, they're, yeah, their entire, their entire career seems to be like a struggle with identity. <laughs> like they have a very strong identity and they, you know, try to disentangle themselves from it album after album fruit for the listener. Right. Right. I mean, even though we're talking about boundaries, like, you know, artfulness versus earnestness or whatever, however we want to talk about it and what sort of how Blake looks at it, you know, they're not, they're not a, I wouldn't say that they're a band of absolutes either. Oh no, I think no, they no, love no. To, I think they love to blur the line and I think they love to play the devil's advocate at every stroke. And I'm talking even musically and artistically as well as um, lyrically and with some of the themes oh, they, sure. that, that, that they visit. I mean, that's at the core of who Ulver is. Sure. You know, the, the trickster. Sure. I mean, who thought that years later they would be doing an, an entire album of 60s psych covers? <laughs> by bands like Jefferson Airplane and Pretty Things. I mean, it just, you know, <laughs> just, just the, Yeah, that 25 years of their career, they would release one of their most accessible albums. Yeah. Oh, are you talking about the new one, Julius Caesar? Yeah, 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 Julius Caesar. A- absolutely, absolutely. We just really want to talk about that one, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> we, we seem to be struggling right now. <laughs> I just hope anybody listening who has any interest whatsoever will, will check that album out because it's, it's really worth the money and the, and the investment of time. So on William Blake, we are getting a, a new garm. We're getting a, a new yes. approach to voice and vocals. Um, and, you know, even though he always utilized his, his cleaner voice on even the early Ulver stuff, uh, if you think back even to the Ulver demo, he was attempting kind of a King Diamond, Merciful Fadish sort of thing. Right. Didn't really come off that well, but yeah. <laughs> Good try. Uh, Berg Tat is wonderful in terms of his sort of like, you know, clean slash harsh duality. Um, and I've never really, I've, I've never bothered to actually break down the, um, the discrepancies time-wise, but I'd wager that there are as many clean vocals on that record as there are uh, harsh. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I, I would maybe, agree. Maybe that. more. Even. I would agree with that. And then, of course, we know what the acoustic album is all about. It's, it's all clean. You know, he's got you know his voice his voice is in in good shape there he sounds really good really confident young young kid but he's pulling that stuff off yes um he sounds probably a lot older um and wiser than than he might have actually been at that time he's he really pulls it off he he really kind of inhabits a character um so he was already like you know quite a quite a vocal character and and quite a talent and you know just somebody who is really interesting and i think that william blake this whole album is kind of his he's just exploding. I mean, he's just, he's just becoming himself. He's becoming trickster G or whatever. Uh, the he, many, I mean, many other names he, he started to go by. I think for the first time he becomes a front man. And, and, and I, and I don't mean to, to sully his performance by saying that, but I mean, he is for the first time, a really, really confident singer, you know, capable of, of pop hooks. Although let's think about the first two Arcturus albums that he was on prior to this. Um, sure, um, but it, it's still it's still a, a different approach altogether. It, it is it, that big booming thing in La Masquerade yeah. Infernal. That's it. You no, know, is it's a, it's a booming big, operatic. 
It's, um, it's bombastic. It's, it's kind of love or hate, but I think that he um, was able to focus that a little bit more on the William Blake album where it didn't sound so, you know, it's not so yeah it's not so overwrought yeah and it works on the arcturist album because that's a very flashy theatrical you know um sort of sort of thing but uh, you know i think it's really this william blake album that he really kind of um kind of reached a new plateau and typical of garm and Oliver's behavior shortly after this album we didn't really hear much of garm's voice for several years and that was like really frustrating for fans and for and for people that wanted to hear more right Oh, I mean, well, the thing is, is like the the two real moments um, that you get on Perdition City just leave you wanting so much more. Absolutely. And by Uh, this time, think about all the garm that we've gotten. Not only the Ulver stuff we're talking about, not only the Arcturus stuff we're talking about, but he was on the first two Borknagar albums as well. Sure. Um, And there there are a couple little appearances elsewhere that he makes. So there was a lot of garm coming at you uh, in the mid, you know, early to mid 90s Norway. Um, out of that whole thing. Um, and then suddenly he just kind of drops off after the the Blake album. Right. Do you think he was fatigued? I don't know that he was. Well, let's back up for a second and think about like what he did in 1997. So he recorded an Arcturus record. He recorded an Ulver record. Well, he recorded an Ulver record that was released. He recorded a uh, Borknagar record and then by the fall of 97 he was already working on heaven and hell right and all i mean all those albums have a lot of vocals i mean obviously not since magical only has some harsh vocals yeah but nonetheless yeah i think i think yeah maybe he was fatigued but i think this is a guy who's so artistically restless that he struggles maybe against his own impulses well okay yeah sure okay go ahead well, I was just going to say, I think that leads us into, you know, you can hear certain influences by uh, bands or artists that aren't really all that vocal, vocal centric. You sure. Know, within the Blake album, like Coil. Coil is, uh, yeah, I mean, Coil, uh, they may be responsible for beginning this whole journey for them. Klaus Schultz, you know, mm-hmm. um, I hear some of that in here. Arvo Part, I think you know more about that than I do, but. Is that worth mentioning here? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Now, Parrot was a huge, huge influence on them from the late 90s on. And it, like the Parrot influence is really, really apparent on Quick Fix and Melancholy. Marvel. That might be their ultimate like exercise of that influence. So we talked about Coil. We talked about Klaus Schultz. We talked about Ar- Arvo Parrot, if that's correct. Yes. Um, you know, and we talked about sort of the, the metal threads within this album and some of the other things that are in this album. But there's also like what you've called, you know, in our discussions, commercial aspirations with this album. Right. A little deeper, what you mean by that? Yeah. And I think it's sort of presumptuous to talk about Ulver's motivations on this because we can never really know. Um, But there are some very, very accessible moments on this album that remind me of things that were going on in the nineties, like nine inch nails stabbing westward even some of um like marilyn manson antichrist superstar mm-hmm. and I, I you know i have no way of verifying whether or not they were listening to any of this stuff but i mean there does seem to be um a push on this album to to, to you know craft really strong pop hooks really driving rhythms and i mean there you know if you 
took some of these songs and some of these moments out of context and played them on the radio, I don't think they'd be all that alarming. Then you know what? I'm going to play something right now. Let's play something from the album um, that illustrates exactly what you're talking about. Okay, very good. Blake on you get this band that tends to vacillate between accessible music and really challenging difficult you know uncategorizable stuff sure and like the, the the singing eps and then all of a sudden you get blood inside so you're saying do you think that this album the william blake album set that up for over this is i do i mean i i think that it is the work of a band who is mature enough and capable enough to really explore those dichotomies. They have all these influences and finally they have, they have a lineup that's capable of doing something with it. They have the studio know-how and they have the songwriting chops. So, you know, this is a band that if they want to do, you know, a album of oval covers or, if they want to do, you know, just a straight rock record, they're perfectly capable of one of those. Right. And almost nothing would surprise us anymore. Yet, I remember when Childhood's End came out, the, the album we mentioned earlier with this, sure. all, all the site covers. I mean, even then I was surprised. Like, they shouldn't surprise me anymore, but when that <laughs> happened, I was surprised. I was also surprised at how good it was, like how, how well that worked. Oh yeah, it's it, absolutely. I mean, it's. I mean, Over took on those songs, and they all of a sudden became Over songs. And I think I mean, they have this, uh, the same. You know, they have the DNA of the originals. But and one important thing to note about them, uh, and I think the reason we were starting to get albums like you know, William Blake's Marriage of Heaven and Hell, uh, Perdition City, Blood Inside, is they were never bound to live performance. No. So that is always, especially when you're, when you're really adventurous in the studio and have the kind of personalities that these guys do and you're, you're the kind of creative minds that these guys are, like you're not bound by live performance. Well, sky's the limit. You can do anything. And they really kind of did do anything. And it was only, I think, right before the Childhood's End era, I guess somewhere after Shadows of the Sun maybe, mm-hmm. um, where they started to kind of dabble in live performance. Right. And when they did, it's, it's pretty phenomenal. Like, you know, the, uh, the national, was it the national Nor- Norwegian opera yeah, house sure. album or whatever that's called. I mean, that's, that's a great, uh, DVD and, and or Blu-ray to have. It's, um, it's really impressive that they, they turned into such a, such a formidable live band. But I mean, it, you know, it took years of refinement to get there and it took just the right band members and just the right resources. Um, and I feel like 
all the things that they were doing before, all the liberties that they enjoyed in the studio gave them the confidence to go out and do it live. Yeah. I think after so many successes, they, uh, they finally settled on that. You know, I keep wanting Deathspell Omega to make an album like Marriage of Heaven and Hell to really just break out the way Oliver broke out. Right. Um, it takes guts to do that. Of course it does. And, and most bands, even bands that aren't encumbered by the obligations of, you know, supporting a household income, still don't have the nerve to do what Oliver did. And perhaps they don't have the will. Maybe they're just not, they're just, it's not interesting to them and they wouldn't, be, you know, cause a lot, a lot of bands make music that they want to listen to. So maybe, sure. maybe Despel Omega never will make their marriage of heaven and hell because it just wouldn't be something they'd want to listen to themselves. Right. They may not like this over album themselves. I mean, I think it was, you know, just a, a failed experiment. Who knows? But I sure would like to see bands of that sort just kind of like step into the unknown and then really, really go left field. But I guess I'm always wanting that. <laughs> so, oh yeah. So yeah, of course. <laughs> so am I. This is why this podcast exists because we're, this, these are the kind of bands that turn us on, you know, the ones that take those radical turns and uh, those abrupt shifts or just those, those, those brave steps. Divine steps. Corner reference. <laughs> Won't be the last one. I'm afraid. Yeah. I hope not. So, <laughs> <laughs> If we were talking about like the commercial aspects of Oliver, yeah, I, I I think I'd be remiss if we didn't mention the Head Control System album. Ah, good which call. is yeah. not entirely great, but is great in parts, and certainly it really kind of expands on that one little thread in Heaven and Hell. So the Head Control System album um, that was with Daniel Car- Cardoso, I believe that's his last name. Yes, who is now with Anathema, right? Interesting. No wonder it was a remarkable album. Right. Do you still listen to the Head Control System album? Is that something that you keep around? I do have it. I've never gotten rid of it. I never will. Um, I think it's an uneven record, but I think um, that Skin Flick and It Hurts um, are essential for any Garm fan and any modern rock fan. Yeah. I use that term loosely. Sure. Sure. And some dangerous connotations, but I think that I, it, you know, it's one of those things. I, you know, it came out on a an indie label. It, Garm still is a cult figure, but in the under the right circumstances, I think those two songs could have been huge hits in their early to mid two thousands. What year did that come out? Two thousand five. And that no, was- no, 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 it didn't. It came out in oh six. Okay, so. Garm by that time had already returned to vocals with Blood Inside. Correct. Over's 2005 album. And would continue on for a couple of years. Sure. The next album, Shadows of the Sun, had had plenty of vocal. Wars of the Roses as well. Childhood's End. Um, You know, the Zodiac album. And we, of course, we all know about Julius Caesar, which uh, I just, I love that I can mention that again, because the assassination (laughs) of Julius Caesar is the album 2017. It's the one to beat so far. Absolutely. Let's go back to William Blake. What what have we not touched on? Do you think is important, or have we have we kind of covered it all? Um, maybe the packaging. Yeah, we mentioned the packaging a little bit, and a little bit with the logo. In terms, yeah. in terms of the logo being on there, but um, yeah, it's a it's a really nice package. I've got. I suppose you have the the version I do with the slipcase. Yes. Uh, and it just 
you know, the booklet just launches right in and it's, it's, it's a lot of, it's a lot of verbiage. It's a lot of narrative. Um, it's a lot, it's a lot of words, <laughs> <laughs> but we are talking about an album that's based on William Blake, William Blake's writing. So there you have it. What I, th- what I think both you and I find amusing and probably everybody else out there who, who bought this album at the time or has, has discovered it since is the band photo. The, the photo. <laughs> For everything we've talked about regarding this album and for, for all the different ingredients and all the different things that it ties together and, and brings in, into the stew, you would not think that you're going to get a band um, presenting themselves in such a way as they did on this album. But no. how did they present themselves? Uh, in suits, uh, posing next to an Italian sports car. It looks like uh, a still from Reservoir Dog. It does. It yeah. absolutely does. Yeah. And I, I think that it's both serious and ironic. I definitely think, and I mean, Garm has gone on record as an antagonist of the most self-serious members of the Norwegian black metal scene. Yeah. Um, and, and that continues, but I mean, that, that photo is perfect. It's, it, frankly, it's funny, but it also shows a band who is willing to take extreme liberties with their own image. Um, and also it's, William Blake is the first record that doesn't um, depict some sort of, you know, Norwegian uh, nature scape. Well, I was going to say in the background of that, of the band photo with the car and, you know, the guys in the suits, obviously the Armani suits, it looks like there's not a tree in sight. You right. know, there's like, this might as well have been uh, photographed in Arizona or something. Sure. Uh, sure. Or, or on the Audubon. Sure. And, and that's, you know, and then this is, this is about all you get other than all the lyrics. And there's a ton of those. And there's some, there's some nice imagery. There's some good artwork inside the booklet. Quite beautiful, pretty classy little package. But, but very suggestive. You know, the, the artwork on the first three albums is so explicit. Yeah. Um, and this is just, t- you know, take it as you will. Sure. I always wondered what that wisp of, of cl- smoke or, or it looks like something like smoke or hair on the back of the right. case was. And that's just, yeah, it's, it's, it's alluring and kind of obscure and, um, you know, definitely what, what I think some people might have criticized it for being arty. You know, right. oliver has gone arty. You know what? I'm glad they did. Music is art. Well, it, it, yeah, there you go. I don't know. I don't have, I've never had this on vinyl. Do you have it on vinyl? No. Uh, has it come I out don't on even, vinyl? I don't even know if it's available on vinyl. It probably is. I'll look that up. It was released on vinyl um, for the first time ever in 2012 on Jester Records. Okay. Um, in, as you might have guessed, two pieces of vinyl, which would be enough to house it because there's a lot of silence at the end of the second CD. Sure. Hopefully we're not sounding too scattered, but I'd like to spin back to that very end of the album. We definitely want to talk about that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's um, yet more narration, yet more spoken stuff under a bed of just some, some really intriguing um, music, but we have uh, Isan from Emperor on stanzas one through seven. We have Samoth from Emperor on stanzas seven through 11. And we have Fenris from Dark Throne on stanzas 12 through 20. Sounding very mighty and convincing. Well, we've talked about this before, just in our in you know, our random conversations. But I think Fenris does Fenris. a fantastic job. Um, Fenris still of wrapping, well. the, of wrapping the album up with his narration. Wow! Sure. And I, I'm really, really interested in the end of this album um, because "A Song for Liberty" literally, to me at least, sounds like 
a black metal band marching away from black metal. I, it has some of the devices of black metal. It's got the tremolo picking, but yeah. then it's like it's tremolo picking this very, very major key melody. It's a the triumphant melody, yes. but not the sort of triumph that we normally associate with black metal. Sure. And they pull, they pull along, you know, three of, of Norwegian black metal's key figures to help them march out in, in this way. I think it's probably a deliberate move. But yeah, I mean, it's hard to imagine three guys, you know, Euronymous accepting, but he wasn't able to join. I, yeah, but I suppose like, Nocturnal Culto might be the other one, but sure, they got Yeah, but like three guys more like emblematic of Norwegian black metal. Sure. And, you know, you can tell it's Isan for the short moment he's in here. He's just got this the certain accent on his voice that's always kind of there, whether whether he's singing, screeching, or anywhere in between. Right. Um, I think Samoth is fairly nondescript. It's okay. Fair to say. Um, sounds like a Norwegian guy. <laughs> <laughs> but then, yeah, Fenris comes on, and, you know, Fenris isn't really known for his vocals or anything like that, and he, I just, he's just commanding. And as you mentioned, that the music underneath is, is um, quite remarkable. And, and, and two, you know, everybody knows the sound of Fenris's voice now. He's a, you know, a much more visible figure. But, you know, in 1998, Fenris was still in the shadows. Absolutely. And I, I, to me, that makes it, that at least at the time, made it all the more special. Oh, yeah. There was, I mean, not, I don't mean to downplay it as a novelty, but it had, did have this kind of novelty aspect of like, wow, you know, he's, he's kind of coming, yeah, coming out of the darkness and like, yeah. um, doing something outside of a, of a Dark Throne album. And I'm sure he did Valhalla and some other side projects. Right. To do, to do something of this caliber, really unusual. So where did Ulver go from here? The next thing we got from them was Metamorphosis. Yes. Uh, and he's even he, more, far more radical. Uh, so. if, yeah. If, if, if Marriage of Heaven and Hell didn't piss off the black metal, <laughs> you know, loyalists, Metamorphosis just made them all turn and run. Um, if, if that's what they were expecting from Ulver was, was black metal, right? Right. Uh, it's, I mean, is it, does it qualify as house music? Is that, is that would that be wrong to call it? Not, I know it, it, people like to call it a house or techno album. It's a, I mean, I would say, techno, EP, excuse me. It's yeah. It's a, you know, a IDM techno record. Sure. Yeah. But I think it's a training ground for Perdition City, which for me is one of the best electronic long players ever. And for the record, my second favorite over record. Yeah, I mean, and, and it even hints at that. It's, it doesn't make any sort of secret about it. Limbo Central is a subtitled theme from Perdition City. Right. The third track on there. And then, you know, for continuity's sake, too, I, and I think Over always know what they're doing. You know, and I think they're always very knowing. And the very. first track is called Of Wolves and Vibrancy. The right. The track is called Of Wolves and Withdrawal. And for those, <laughs> you know, Ulver is is you know, Norwegian for wolves, wolf. for wolf. 
So, you know, I, I like I like the continuity there. I, I mean, I really think you can trace out continuity from throughout their entire career, even if the moves seem abrupt. Like you, 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 you hit the nail on the head. They're a very conscious band. Some bands make music, the music just moves them, and they just go wherever the music takes them. Over is one of the few bands I know that's able to effectively move around their own music. Some people, and I, I'll say they'd be wrong, but some people would probably call that pretentious, you know, in terms of like having a pretense to, to what you're doing, sure. kind of setting out like, here's what we're going to do and here's how we're going to do it. But I think that's, that has actually allowed Oliver to be more creative because if you're just kind of going with the flow and you're kind of jamming and seeing what happens, you're, you're, not, you're not maybe going to break through many walls that way. I, th- I think Oliver's sort of very deliberate approach is just kind of unto themselves. I agree. I mean, or, that's how, you know, films are made. Sure. Or are there equally experimental musical groups? Like I think Coyle is probably another a good example. Of, oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. Very conceptual. Yeah. Where they probably knew exactly where they were going before any of it was recorded. I think so. Sure. Yeah. At least that's how a lot of these older albums feel uh, in this era. So, so yeah, we end up with metamorphosis uh, shortly after William Blake, maybe about 10 months. Mm-hmm. And from there, the rest is history, I suppose. I suppose. that's a it's a living history there oh it is yeah can we mention julius caesar one more time we can (laughs) (laughs) now at record bar in music land the new over album assassination of julius caesar pick it up now (laughs) i'll be editing that out um we can totally mention the assassination of Julius Caesar because that's that's where they are at the moment. You know, in fact, that's probably not where they're at anymore. They're probably oh yeah no they're yeah they're probably, yeah plotting plotting the next attack. But you know, I think I think Julius Caesar is really satisfying because I think you agree with me that Wars of the Roses, for instance, their album of several years ago now was good, but that was a bit flawed. Oh, was, um, yeah. it, even even still, um, I struggle with that record. Childhood's There's a lot of good stuff on it, but yeah, it's childhood's end uh, was kind of was good, but because it was covers, we we couldn't kind of consider it, you know, the next overstatement necessarily. Right. And after that, we got a number of things. We got the the Messe Messe record, yeah, Messe record. What are your What's your thought on that one? I'm a fan. Um, interesting mix of things. More uh, more Arva Parrot, um, craft work. And then the Zodiac album, the, the sort of kind of live, kind of sure. not live. I think that's a fantastic album. But again, Agreed. it's borrowing from some old material. And I have yet to pick up Riverhead, which makes me a terrible Ulver fan. But I suppose not being a big fan of the other soundtrack things that they did in the past, I sort of avoided it. Yeah, I, um, I had a better relationship with um, Svid, is it Svid Nager. Yeah, Svid Nager, Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was I was taken by Svidnager um, when it came out, but I have not found that to be particularly enduring. But I think what we like about Assassination of Julius Caesar is that this is not only like the best Oliver album since Blood Inside. I, I think we both agree on that. Uh, we we do. But I think I think it's going to be one of those that when it's all said and done for Oliver, I'm going to look back and go, that's one of the top tier. Oliver records the one one of those ones that really mattered that you could get really really deep into and one that doesn't have any excess because marriage of heaven and hell as much as we love it it's a yeah i don't think i could put it in my top 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 tier of all the records 
it's important. Right. It's very important. And it's very enjoyable and worth investigation and something I'll never want to part with or be without. But I think assassination is even more special than that. Tall praise, but justifiable. That's high praise. Some, some high praise you got going on right there. Now that's it for this episode. Look for the second installment of Radical Research in two weeks when Hunter and I delve deeply into the avant-garde personality of Swedish madman Don Zvanya. Would you like to explain Don Zvanya, Hunter? Yes, the um, anglicized version probably goes something like Dan Swano or Dan Swano. The uh, Swedish pronunciation is Don Zvanya. And henceforth, we'll be calling him Don Zvanya. Who's fine work in such bands as Edge of Sanity and Panthimonium and Kirabujan. Yeah, we'll, we'll be exploring all of that on the uh, second installment of Radical Research. We'll probably throw in a little bit on Route 9 and uh, some of the more eclectic turns that Edge of Sanity took, as well as perhaps his associations with Catatonia and Opeth. So for Hunter Ginn and myself, please always buy your music and listen deeply. is the bound outward circumference of energy. Three, three. Energy is eternal delights. Three, three.